Hello, I'm Paco Alvarez, and this is The Backstory from Type Investigations, where we sit down with one of our reporters and ask them to take us behind the scenes of their work. Today, I'm speaking to Ida B. Wells fellow Akintende Ahmad about his article, What Happened When Oakland Tried to Make Police Pay for Misconduct, produced in partnership with The Appeal. In his investigation, Akintende looks back at a program from two decades ago that required the Oakland Police Department to pay some of its own legal costs, and how the city failed to enact the change it promised. In this conversation, we discuss how he developed some of the sources for his story, the challenges he faced reporting on events from decades ago, and what activists can learn from this failed attempt at police reform. So my first question is, what initially drew you to the story? Cool. So being born and raised in Oakland, I was really a kid when the Oakland Riders case happened and the following negotiated settlement agreement was originally signed. I'm born in 1996. The Riders case settled and negotiated settlement agreement started in 2003. And so when I started to just get more interested in reporting on policing and obviously looking to my hometown, Um, As a case study for that, I was like, oh, wow, Um, we're actually in year 19 of this federal oversight program being in existence. And obviously, I wasn't a seven year old doing a deep dive (laughs) into into, uh, you know, police reform and and federally mandated oversight. And so um, it was interesting to just kind of look back into history and see what was actually going on in my city at the time of my birth and, and everything. And so, yeah, just like a, a personal connection to the city. And that's what like was the kickoff point of police reform in Oakland. And yeah, since your story is so like historical, how did you go about uncovering the history of Oakland's attempts to reform policing? Yeah. So originally I just leaned into some connections that I had to people in the community. And so started off with John Burris, who is a longtime civil rights attorney who also um, represented the victims in the Oakland Riders case that kind of sparked all of this. And so he was just always around community. He's one of those people where I, I don't know where I originally met him. I don't know how long I've known him for. I've just kind of always known him. Yeah, reached out to him and told him that I was reporting um, on this case and using that as a branch off point. And so he just had a wealth of knowledge, obviously, because he has over three decades of experience being a civil rights attorney and representing victims of police misconduct in the city. But also he just knows everybody. So whether it be police officers or victims in cases he's represented or federal judges, he was like, yeah, yeah, it wasn't just as simple as like talk to me and I'll tell you everything is also like, you need to talk to this person. You need to talk to this person. You need to talk to this person. And um, yeah. And then there were, there were other people, there's people like Regina Jackson who runs the East local youth development center who serves as the, the head of the citizens police commission in Oakland. So she had a bunch of resources. And then coincidentally, I actually knew the current police chief through my days in like sports with Oakland pal police athletic league. And he's like, probably the one police officer that I even knew. And when we first started talking about this, he was not police chief. Um, and so um, he became even, you know, a more of a valuable asset to the story once he became chief, obviously, because now I just have a direct connection to somebody who I can uh, reach out to an email and yeah, get comment and get feedback on things. And so 
yeah, all of this kind of led me to the path of actually being introduced to Rashida Grenage, who's a longtime community activist, who actually, in an interview that we were having, in an offhand comment, mentioned this risk management incentive program. And so we were talking about just, you know, her longstanding history in the city um, after her her son and husband were both shot and killed by Oakland police in the 90s. And we were talking about, you know, different ways of reforming the department and accountability measures that can be put into place. And yeah, she was just offhand mentioned the risk management incentive program that was around from the late 90s to the early 2000s. And I was like, wait, what, like, what is that? And that's what gave rise to that. I, I did not go into that conversation knowing this program existed or asking questions about it. We were just talking about her work as an activist in the city in general. And so it was, it was probably like our third or fourth conversation actually that I'd had with her um, when she mentioned this. And that's what actually gave rise to the story that we're publishing now. What were some of the challenges you faced while reporting? Was it difficult to report on events that took place primarily like over 20 years ago? It was definitely difficult reporting on something that it took place over 20 years ago. I mean, for one, just getting access to records and things at that time, difficult people have to kind of do a deep dive. And so after getting records, then it's like, okay, I see the different names of council members or um, risk managers in the city at the time, and a lot of them are not still working with the city because a lot of these you know, documents that are signed are from 1999 or 2000. So it's been, like you said, over two decades since that happened. So uh, then it's just kind of following paper trail and connections and trying to talk to people and get people on the phone. But <laughs> due to the history of Oakland policing in Oakland, and especially in that time when you have like the Oakland Riders case and negotiated settlement agreement happening just after this, um, which obviously took up a lot of people's attention and focus when you ask them about this program. Uh, a lot of folks don't really recall it, right? They're like, oh, I kind of do remember this program or can you refresh my memory about it? And so, yeah, it was just a, a bit difficult to get people who were super knowledgeable about this. And obviously Rashida was one of the people who was influential in creating and crafting the program and bringing it to city council and getting it implemented. But I think part of the reason why a lot of people also may not have recalled it as such is one of the reasons why I'm reporting on this because it had no teeth, right? The financial transfers had no record of actually being made. And so, yeah, the impact that it was supposed to have was not actually executed in the way it was initially planned. And so, yeah, because of all of these things, it's like it's compound effects. It's like it happened so long ago. People don't remember. They don't remember because it wasn't executed in the way that it was supposed to be. And then there was just limited documents that were available. And I mean, we, we got quite a few to reference. And I think that's what the strength of the story rests on. But yeah, it, it definitely was was not easy. Did you face any pushback trying to get documents and information from Oakland city officials? I think I'm actually fortunate to be in a city like Oakland because there are so many journalists who have really been bringing to the public and to people's attention the difficulties that they face um, when requesting documents about police. And so I actually didn't face much pushback in getting the, the documents because I think there had just been um, just like SB 1421 um, which is a recent act in California is around, you know, transparency around documents and things happening in a timely manner. And so, yeah, surprisingly, it was like a pretty straightforward request through the the city's portal, which functions kind of like a FOIA 
uh, but they just have their own department of doing that. And it actually didn't take too long for me to get these documents back. Um, and I think they had those on hand or maybe somebody had referenced them before or something. But um, yeah, I, I think <laughs> I think that was surprising. Some of the other things that I requested from my original story pitch, which was more focused on the writers and um, officers, the histories of misconduct, I think that stuff um, has been taking much longer. And some of it is still, you know, the process of, of getting back. And every now and then I get, I get a random email from the, the portal saying a new document has been released that may be relevant to your request. But um, yeah, I mean, I think I haven't, I haven't had to do too much reporting in other cities specifically, but uh, it was more straightforward in happened in a more timely manner than I expected. You sort of spoke about this a bit. Do you feel like coming from Oakland gave you any useful insights into the community that helped your reporting? I definitely think being uh, born and raised in Oakland and, and having a lot of connections to different community members played a really pivotal role for being able to make this story come to fruition and actually have you know some teeth, some sources, some people with firsthand experience um, across the board. Yeah, that definitely played a big a big role in that. I really just leaned into my community and I never had to like cold email somebody. Um, it was always got a reference from somebody else. And even if it was my initial point of contact, I could say, you know, I, I got your number or I got your email from such and such who is, you know, I got your number from the police chief um, who, who's been talking to me about this. And so I also think that in some cases, just having, which is really, really rare, but currently like having a police chief who was actually willing to talk and have these conversations, it disarms other people um, who would be more willing to talk because they're like, oh, well, the police chief is talking about it. It can't be, you know, it can't be that dire, or, you know, like tiptoeing around a subject that may, that may get I don't know, the department in trouble or whatever it may be. And so, yeah, I, I think that, yeah, just leaning on community and having those connections is what allowed for this story to happen. And I met a lot of people along the way who, you know, for other stories um, and reporting, now I just have developed a whole new, I don't know, Rolodex of sources. I don't know, people don't use Rolodexes, but I guess that term still matters. <laughs> Obviously, like the past few years have seen like a big uptick in like, you know, states and cities uh, attempting to reform the police. What do you hope organizers and activists seeking police reforms in, in other cities and states can learn from the history you reported on? Yeah, I think the biggest thing that folks can learn from my story is a policy, a proposal, a city bill, whatever it may be, only has as much strength of the politicians who are willing to enforce it. Um, and so in this case, like we have this, this whole program is flushed out, is based on success um, in other cities. You know, so it's a pretty straightforward program. It's, we're gonna use the past 10 years to average out your liability cost. Um, and so, you know, let's say it was $2 million. We're gonna pre-allocate this amount to you at the start of your year. If you stay under that $2 million budget that you already have, then you're just going to have excess discretionary funds to use however you want. Um, and this is not just for the police department. This is also for the fire department, um, parks and recreation, and public works. And so, but if you go over that pre-allocated amount, then 
you're going to have to pay 25% of your overage from your own budget pulled from some other way. And so that's why it's an incentive and disincentive program. And yeah, everything was flushed out, but the politicians in the city just did not enforce it, even though everything was was signed off and it, it had plans and we have records I'm showing things were signed. We just have this other letter that says no transfers were ever being made. And, and that's what, you know, the bulk of this reporting sits on, like what actually happened there. Um, and then talking to politicians um, in our city who are still, you know, working in city council and former ones, they were saying, you know, this is not the only example of this happening. There have been other bills that have been passed and things that have been adopted, but just weren't actually carried out and implemented. And so, um, especially on a city level and in city government, there is nobody who is really making sure that things are happening in a timely manner, making sure things are pushing because there's so many things going on. So, you know, you can have, you know, whatever program that it may be, but if folks are dragging their feet to roll it out or if nobody is really checking that the finances are being transferred in the way that they were originally intended or there are no journalists who are you know doing the checking on behalf of the public to make sure that these things happen then yeah how else can you enforce that and do you have any advice for reporters hoping to uh report on like police reform efforts Definitely. I think my main advice to anybody reporting on police reform efforts would be to really lean in into the community of people who have a long lasting history of working in that space, because there are a lot of folks who and not to, you know, talk talk bad about anybody who's new to the reform um, world, but um, there are a lot of people who may get a lot of attention um, and, and utilize social media very well to become the voice uh, of reform movements and things who may not actually be the best suited people to give the history and the background and understanding what works. And so um, for me, it was in- really interesting to come across Rashida Grenage because her son and husband were killed by the police in 1993. And so ever since then, for almost three decades now, um, she's really been influential in this and she's never been interested in politics. She's never been interested in the spotlight. I mean, she's also now like a an older aged uh, white woman who most folks would not think is the archetype of the type of person who would be so dedicated to police reform, but her track record speaks for itself. She's been so influential in a lot of city bills um, and laws and, and legislation and public policy. Yeah, like I said, spanning over three decades and has really been so focused on doing the work and getting the support from the work and has no interest in self-promotion has no interest in making sure that it's known that she's the one doing it. And so um, trying to find those people in those communities who just have such a wealth of knowledge um, and have a track record to show. I've been doing this for 30 years. I know this worked. I know this didn't work. I remember when we tried this and I remember why it didn't work and why the funding didn't happen. And so just kind of leaning on those folks. And then yeah, knowing that everybody also still has a value um, to add. So just getting a wide, wide range of perspectives. I mean, for this story, I talked to everybody from the police chief to former police captains who are retired, who can speak more freely uh, about things. I would say do not sleep on former police officers as a source because, you know, current police officers, regardless of how they feel, um, that blue light wall of silence is real in a lot of cases, um, but it's real because people want to collect their pensions. You may be 20 years into a career or 10 years away from making sure that you get your retirement. 
and could risk being fired because you say something that may be contrary to what the department wants. But retired police officers have been some of my best sources because they're not beholden to anybody anymore. And so, yeah, they say a lot of things that, and they're transparent. They say, I would have never said this while I was an officer. However, now I can speak freely about it. Um, And so I think that's another very valuable source um, in looking at police reform. You can read what happened when Oakland tried to make police pay for misconduct at the Appeal or the Type Investigations website. Check our show notes for a link to the article. A transcript of this backstory is available at typeinvestigations.org backstory.